When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, June 27th, the Supporting My Non-Binary Teen Edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's 8, and Teddy, who's 5. And we live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, this week is a little wonky. Jamila and Zach are out on vacation, so you get me. The main section of this episode is a segment I did with Dr. Joseph Curran, a licensed psychologist and assistant professor who focuses on identity development and sex education. A little while back, you all submitted your toughest teen questions, and he's here helping me tackle them. But before that, we need to talk about the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade on Friday. I'm so glad to be joined by Slate senior editor, parent, and friend of the show, Rebecca Onion. And we want to acknowledge that this is definitely not the full conversation that we need to have, but we did not want this moment to pass by. And I know um, Rebecca and I were just talking that, like, just being able to talk to another human about this. So we're we're hoping that this conversation just, just helps you in this moment. So I guess, Rebecca, how are you feeling? Oh, overwhelmed. Um, the leak coming when it did, you know, whatever that was five, six weeks ago. I feel like a lot of my emotions were spent when that came out. And still, it hits hard to see it actually happen. Most people that I, I am in such a filter bubble, I realize, <laughs> as most people that I interact with are like absolutely miserable and overwhelmed. Um, and then every once in a while, someone kind of peeks through who's like, this is a great day. And I'm like, wait, how'd you get in here? <laughs> um, so that's actually but, something I've I've talked about here because I'm in this odd place in Colorado Springs where like my core group of what I'd call like true friends are all on the same page because it's hard to like build those kind of relationships when you have totally different feelings about such major issues. Mm-hmm. But like the parent friends that I interact with day to day, like I, I feel like I'm almost hiding today because I know mm-hmm. that some of them are going to be celebrating and and figuring out how to respond in a way that is is meaningful right like i have this moment mm-hmm. to have these conversations with them in a relationship that i have built in being parents together how do i use that moment to like say something that is meaningful in a way that they can hear like i i think about that a lot right like oh, i feel yeah. angry and upset but if i if i echo that back to them I'm not using what little cloud I have to say like, hey, actually, this is not this this great win for life or for whatever that that you think of it as, you know? That's so interesting. I think, you know, I live in Ohio, so yeah. I have like a similar... Um, but my child, yeah, exactly. But my child is only five and a half. So we're still in the time when, um, you know, she is on the brink of going to elementary school. Right. And elementary school is going to be, I think, when these kinds of relationships start to happen a little bit more. Um, as of now, I, what I have here is the core group of friends who are all, you know, on the same page. I'm editing this piece. Um, it's not out yet. I think it'll be out next week um, by a historian who's writing about 
the formation of the pro-life identity, like the idea that um, a belief in anti-abortion politics is not just like a belief in one thing, but is also a belief in sort of like a, like a whole constellation yes, of ideas. Yes. Um, and so I think that's probably why it's like partly hard for you is that it's like, it's not just like having some kind of both sides conversation about a, you know, a controversial issue you disagree on. You're trying to come across like a big identity divide. It's really hard. It really leaves me in a place of like, what next? Like, how do we predict <laughs> the future of, of what this looks like in our coming weeks, months, years? Oh my gosh. I have no <laughs> idea. I think that, um, I mean, it's, it's hard because, you know, one of my roles at Slate among others is editing history related content. And in the month and a half since the draft was leaked, I've edited like however many thousands of words on like what it was like before Roe. There are so many different variables right now, um, especially like social variables. I mean, technology is totally different. Communications are totally different. Transportation, travel, all of those things. Um, and even things like, you know, stigma and shaming, like the way that people just didn't talk about pregnancy. Right. Um, and that's still true in some communities now. But I, I think on on a whole, like from what I've read about the immediate pre-road time, in some ways we're better off in terms of being willing to talk about it. More people know someone who's had an abortion. Um, But at the same time, the way that our political system, electoral system has um, been like contracted and and constricted so that, you know, I mean, whatever, it's a familiar, very old story uh, to people who listen to this podcast, probably, but like the way that, you know, gerrymandering and, you know, the um, electoral college have made it so that there's a minoritarian rule that has changed a lot since pre row. I guess one of the things we're wondering is, like, do you have a prediction on what this is going to look like for people, specifically parents? So, like, for parents who want to get an abortion but can't access one. So I was looking this up. The um, The Guttmacher Institute has a statistic that it's, like, 6 out of 10 women who get abortions in the U.S. already have kids. Yeah. Um, so this is, like, a parenting issue. And one of the things that they'll often say is, you know, I wanted to have resources for my existing kids, like the kids that are already here. I think that it is yet another instance in which, again, back to the identity thing, like if you have a certain set of beliefs about gender, parenting, domesticity, the family, um, then it's kind of like a more the merrier situation. Like the idea that you want to make a choice about, uh, you know, when you have them, how you have you them, have them, how you have, you have them, them with. <laughs> yeah, that that's like a decision that's made out of like resistance to something natural, which the natural thing is to sort of like accept what's going to happen and like try to extend yourself Mm. further, which I feel like is this idea about especially women, maybe parents in general, but specifically women and mothers that like you do have infinite reserves if you could just like tap into it. That's so true. Like Um, just have more. What's the big deal? Exactly. (laughs) Um, You see a little bit of it in like occasionally there's like this – you know, infuriating clickbait articles from right-wing women. I can I have one particular person in my mind that I will not say, um, where they explain, you know, how they came to have nine children and how great it is and, um, you know, whatever. And that you always, like, look into their backgrounds and they have, like, a lot of money and their, their husband has a really, like, high-paying job or whatever. My frustration about this whole thing is looking at the totality of the situation. Like, we're going to pass this abortion ban 
but also we're not going to provide anything else that to me is the life part of that, right? Like we don't care about maternal health care. We don't care about um, your child safety in their school. We don't care if they get fed, be that like our formula shortage or making sure that we have enough food and clean water. Like we don't care about any of that, but you need to have this baby is mind blowing to me as a person who can have a baby. Like, the, you know, just this like idea that I in the future could not have any choice in that um, is, is crazy. Like is uh, I, it doesn't, it almost like doesn't compute. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait, what? Have you thought at all about how to bring this up with your kids or how other parents can bring it up with their kids? I am not going to bring it up unless she brings it up, <laughs> but, yeah. but I'm a coward. Um, yes. You know, she's only five. Um, she has like a, um, I think it's classically five-year-old sort of like self-centered uh, yeah, yeah. like view of the world. And I think she would mostly just find it kind of like striking and sad, the idea of parents not wanting to have kids. Yeah. Um, Cause like every once in a while, she'll say something like that to me. Like if we're having a particularly hard time, she'll the other day she said, I bet you wish you never had a little girl, which was like, was so sad. I broke my heart. I was like, no, I don't wish that. I just wish that you would brush your teeth. Like, whatever. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, so I haven't had to deal with it yet. My oldest boy is 10 and, you know, obviously has heard the word abortion sort of asked about it. And I was like struck with this idea of exactly that, that like, there's this gut instinct of like, Okay, I have to explain that sometimes we terminate a pregnancy um, for many reasons, including choice, you know, and and really found that one, it was best to answer honestly, but to also tell Mm -hmm. him like, this is a kind of medical care, he receives a bunch of medical care. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is really a decision that that should be made with a provider that you feel safe with because mm. he understands that he's had a bunch of medical procedures. He has met doctors. He has heard us talk about whether or not he should have a tonsillectomy, you, you know, mm-hmm. those sort of things. And so relating it to that in terms of like, you don't necessarily have to agree with the outcome or understand this, but the, the abortion itself is a medical procedure that there are a lot of different reasons. And like many healthcare things, you don't get to decide when, when someone has those things. That is a personal decision that a person makes with their doctor. And, and that is kind of how we've framed it um, at this point, because I want to give it, it's like I didn't want to give him the chance to think too much or hear too much about like, I don't know, there's just something about when we and, and I think this is how like pro-life has become, right? Like if abortion is killing babies, it's really easy to sell as as something bad, it's complicated um, because you're you're bringing up, you know, the idea that some parents didn't want to be parents, but also that um, there there are some really tough like adult situations that uh, that people, you know, that come up like a, yeah. I edit, I I'm sorry to continually plug the various pieces around this that I've no, edited. No, no, that's what we want. But, uh, people yeah. want information. <laughs> I edited this really good personal essay by this woman who um whose mom was in a really bad domestic violence situation. And when she was around 13, her mom got pregnant and was like 42, you know, pretty old already, but also just like really trying to leave this guy. Um, And she got the abortion and she was able to leave him. Um, Right. And if she hadn't, things would have been totally different. Right. But can't tell a 10 year old kid that story. He doesn't have the context to understand that yet. So I was thinking, like, how do I set the stage so that when he is old enough to read that, this he almost doesn't have to have that 
moral debate because we've already kind of set this as like this is a medical decision. I don't. I, I mean, I need him to understand mm-hmm. that the world is not black and white. I don't want to read into what you're saying too much, but I will just say no, <laughs> that it sounds a little bit like it's like um, you know the the pro life position is a black and white position. So yes, in a little yes, in a what, little bit of a way, it seems like it, there's like a little bit of a worry that if we don't get into the complexity with kids they'll end up sort of like sticking getting stuck in like so that, that, that is what i'm worried i think yeah you summed up very nicely and i think yeah. <laughs> i think i don't know maybe this is cowardly of me but i no, really no. do i do feel like that like as they grow up and they go along um uh, if you're if they're living in a household where they see you guys model conversations about difficult topics um that are complex um i feel like they'll get it um, yeah. like, I don't know. I feel like there's more, uh, maybe it's a cliche. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, maybe credit. it's a, yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a cliche <laughs> to say, but I feel like there's more to like the development of a child's worldview than like these explicit targeted conversations yeah, yeah. about topics. It's like about the like habits of mind kind of. And if you're teaching the habits of mind in like other realms, then I feel like it'll get transferred over. Um, such a good optimist. Okay, I'm gonna uh, go with that. Such a good. I hope it's a true. Optimism on today. <laughs> well, I hope so. we we did want to let everyone know that there's a bunch of great slate coverage mm-hmm. and analysis that we'll link to in the show notes. Rebecca, do you have other articles or resources to recommend to our listeners? I mean, there's a million great pieces on Slate.com right now about this decision. Um, among them, I would especially recommend uh, Susan Matthews wrote a piece called This is a Blood Issue, which is about the uh, fundamental division inside the Roe decision. Um, and Susan, just people might know, uh, did a whole slow burn season on the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, so she's been thinking about this for months, and the piece is really helpful and puts its finger on something. I yeah. was going to second the slow burn just to say, like, if, if podcasts are more your thing, head over there, mm-hmm. you'll get a deep dive into into the larger picture of this and this yeah. definitely will not be the last conversation about this that you hear on um, mom and dad are fighting um, it's just the beginning we of course will cover changes in this post-row world but we'd really love to hear from you let us know what thoughts insights or questions you have uh, you're welcome to send us a voice memo screaming into the void we <laughs> we love to hear those and and just be here for you you can email us at mom and dad at slate.com and a huge thank you, Rebecca, for joining me on such short notice to just have, have a conversation about this. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Dr. Kern and I are going to pivot to your teen questions. Stay with us. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, Get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com easy.
That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Talking about money can be so hard, especially when the person you're talking to is still learning how to do long division. That's why Million Bazillion, a Webby winning podcast from Marketplace, is here to help. I'm Bridget, and with my fellow co-host Ryan, we help teach your little ones about complex topics like bankruptcy, climate change, and why there's so much gold at Fort Knox, and so much more. Listen to Million Bazillion wherever you get your podcasts. All right, today we are speaking with Dr. Joseph Curran. Joe is a licensed psychologist and assistant professor who focuses on sex education and identity development. Joe, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We've had a ton of questions from parents, and we're going to try to get through them all. But before that, can you kind of tell us how you got into this work and what you find rewarding about it? I got into this, honestly, um, going through my own stuff through therapy and realized I really liked this. Like, I, I this is it kind of spoke to me from a different angle where, like, I want to do this. And then as I got into my education and training, all of a sudden, I also really fell in love with teaching. And so then it was like, hey, wait, I want to do both of these things. It's kind of funny because my favorite client age group, in all honesty, is college age. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I have clients that range from all ages and I've worked with all ages. But that's kind of my favorite because they're at this point where the first time in their life, they are separate yeah. from, you know, family. So they have kind of the control to be like, hey, I can make some decisions. Yet they're young enough that they're still looking for guidance. And so you really can just really empower this age group to kind of find who they really are, you know, kind of really figure that out. And so I think it's a really cool age group. And, you know, with teaching, like, my favorite thing I always say in class is like, I'm not here to tell you how to think. I'm here to make you think about why you think how you do. And if I can do that, I've done my job. And so, and students really resonate with that because then it's not, you know, oh, the professor's telling me what to do. It's, oh, I get to try these things on and see if I like them. So yeah. yeah. Which is good in the classroom. And also, I mean, so many of these questions kind of come from that, from this a this college age group searching for their own identity and separating mm-hmm. themselves from their parents, but also being faced with, like, the world we live in today and then parents not sure how, like, how do we shepherd them, but also give them, <laughs> you know, this independence. <laughs> um, yeah. It's well, a- it's kind of that, it's kind of that, pull of like, you know, we have this magic age, you know, like someone decided at 18, we were adults, Um, (laughs) which I'd like to revisit that decision. But um, they're off kind of trying to adult. And then parents are also trying to like, I know my child's an adult, but they're my child. And so it's just like, it's, it's that time frame of identity development. You know, it's kind of like they're, who am I kind of going on? So yeah. Are you ready to dive in? Sure. Let's let's <laughs> okay. let's see what so we got. <laughs> here's our first one. How can parents make themselves safer spaces for teens to discuss and explore their identity and sexuality? Okay, so we're gonna start with we're the big starting one. Okay. big big with the big one. Yeah, what everybody wants to know. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> What's the um, magic answer, Joe? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, magic answer. I'm probably there gonna fail. One, yeah. Um But I will say this, the fact that this person is asking the question, to me, probably communicates they are trying to provide a safe space. And that's really all we can do. Kind of what's a safe space? It's one where people aren't judging each other. Um, It's one that feels comfortable to say something and not 
not feel like you're not being listened to. You know, it's kind of going into the therapy room for a minute. One of the exercises I practice with couples and also with families is, you know, before you say something in response, you have to restate what the person said. Mm. And that's a really good way to generate a safe space because a lot of times, especially with these conversations, adolescents and early adulthood, they're, they're very anxious if they're trying to share something, if they're trying to explore something that maybe they think their parents aren't going to necessarily support. And the best way to do that is before you respond to them, restate what you think they just said. Yeah, and, and by being able to kind of have this check, I call it check for understanding. Um, I think the technical term is reflective listening. <laughs> you know, for the, yeah. the any of the therapists out there, um, they're like, I know what that is. Uh, but it it, it 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 enables the space to actually be safe, where you can share something, and it's kind of it does two things. It makes the person listen, and it also keeps them from just responding immediately. You know, yeah. a lot of times in conversations, people like they're waiting their turn. They're not really processing yeah. the information. And so to me, that's the biggest thing in creating a safe space is, is really how you listen and then how you respond to that. And, you know, it's okay to be authentic. It's okay to share your emotions. Being thoughtful is a really good way to make sure that that's done appropriately yeah. for everybody involved. And so that that's what I would say to make that safe space. Because if somebody's already asking this question, that to me, that sounds like they're trying. So the, the space is pretty safe anyway. It's just that's the technique I would give. Like, No, that's that. awesome. I don't have teens. My kids are little. Um, but <laughs> but <laughs> They like, will be. They <laughs> will be. And when I look forward, I think one of the things I'm trying to kind of think about now is this idea of like I didn't have these conversations on sexuality and on identity finding when I was that age like my parents didn't have them with me I don't know if they you know it seems like they didn't really exist in the main stage we were not having these kind of conversations and so I don't have anything to model that after and I feel like I'm in a phase right now of learning more from people that are in my sphere that have opened up to me, but these are all mm-hmm. new things. And and I think for a lot of parents, that's true. Not that they're, they are at all new in the world, but new to us as parents. And kind of figuring out, how do I make sure that when my child approaches me with this, that they are not bogged down with my baggage that mm-hmm. comes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with, with they- in this space? How do I not hand them my my package? Hand them your stuff. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you even say that because um, I mean I'm an out gay man, and so like I'm I'm in my 40s, so I I didn't have the model either, right? right. You know, I and so what I think partly of what we see today is this recognition from people, you know, in this generation that have gone through this and said, "Wait, I didn't have anything." And, and, and it's a thing. Like we need, we need to make sure that we, we talk about this and that, you know, there's models and there's books and there's information. And so I think that's why a lot of people are seeing it now because people that went through this before didn't have anything. And, and it was a recognition of like, I needed something to guide yeah. me and there was nothing to guide me. So I think that's why it's, it's seen now. Um, versus, you know, obviously when we were growing up, like it wasn't a yeah. thing. Um, so the the second part of that question, you say baggage. I actually say emotion. It's not really it's it's not a baggage. It's okay. So like you when you when you had your child at that moment, you automatically start visualizing like what this child's life is going to be, right? Yeah. Like and we can say like, oh no, I would never do that. We do that. No, There's nothing wrong with doing yeah. it. Yeah. So it happens. It's a thing. 
And part of that stuff, part of that baggage, um, I just did air quotes like people yeah. could see me do air quotes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, part of that is parents realizing, wait, my child's life is different than what I thought it was going to be. And that's upsetting for parents. And sometimes parents feel really guilty about that. And so then that stuff comes up too. So now it's like, oh, I I don't know how to handle this. And I'm feeling bad about how I feel. And now I don't know what to do. And then it just comes out. And so I I think what's really important for parents to understand is that, hey, you're allowed your emotion, make sure it's in the right spot. Make sure it's in the right place. You know, uh, parents are allowed to be, you know, have a period to be like, wait a minute, my child's life is going to be different. You know, my child's life is going to go in a different direction than I thought it was. And that means some things. I'm going to gain some things, but I'm also might lose some things as well. And, And that's okay. And so I think that gets lost in this whole shuffle. You know, it's kind of the, oh, when my child says something, I'm just supposed to immediately run and be like, yay. And it's like, we're not robots. Like we, we, we're humans too. And so I think that's what I would say is allow, like, don't, don't feel bad about your emotion. You need to find a place to explore your own emotion with that versus obviously, you know, p- projecting that out to your child. <laughs> I always remind the client, like, you've known about this for a really long time. You know, mom and dad's known about it about eight minutes. So we, we've got to give them time. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes people just don't realize that. Like, it, it does, we don't think about it. So I definitely think, like, the way to keep the, you know, to use your word, the baggage, <laughs> uh, <laughs> away from that is to realize what that is and then to find the appropriate sources to talk to about that. You know, whether that's your support group, your friends, family members, or even, I, I'm going to throw it out there, a therapist. A therapist, yeah. Uh, yeah we right? recommend a lot of therapy on the show. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. So, that, I mean, that's what I, that that's how I would answer that. So, yeah. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. We have a specific example about safe spaces that we'd love your insight on. A listener writes, how can I best support my teen who has come out to me, the mom, as non-binary, but doesn't want me to share with anyone, including my husband? This feels too big to keep just between the two of us, but I also want to respect their wishes. They are fine at the moment, at the very end of high school, with being outwardly labeled as male. But as they move on to college this fall, they want to start using gender-neutral pronouns. I definitely understand um, the mom's point of view. Like, this seems bigger than just something I can keep. However, your child has trusted you with this to keep right now. And and that's the advice I would give is this is, you know, this is a journey for everyone involved. And everyone gets on the bus, for lack of a better analogy, at a different time. And right now, you know, their child has been on the bus, obviously, for a really long time. Okay. And it's now us mom to get on the bus, but it isn't ready really to let other people on the bus yet. And, and, and it can be really damaging to force other people onto the bus. Yeah. Um, notice I'm not using the closet analogy. I have yeah, issues yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, we're not, we don't want other people on the bus yet. And it's really important to respect that wish. It, it's not a forever. Right. I mean, to be really honest, um, 
you know, if if they are wanting to use gender neutral pronouns in their college life, like that's going to become known. Yeah. Right. Like there's going to be things that will start, you know, coming out and being being okay. To me, that that really is something that um we need to I, I would I would encourage the mom to allow that to happen. Now, on the same token, I would talk to them about why not tell dad? Yeah, I was interested so, in that too. Like, what yeah, what's going it, on that they don't want dad to know? Right. Like, what's the concern? What's the issue? And being able to tease that apart and be able to explore that, um, honestly, is is to me that's it. If I was the mom, that's exactly what I would do with my child. Is you know, I would respect that wish, but I'd also explore. Okay, so I'm going to respect that wish, but I I want to help you understand and explore why you want this right now. Like why why are we keeping this separate? Um, because there may be things that you know the child thinks might happen or yeah. is concerned about, and and mom can help alleviate that. And at the same time, there might be some real things that need to kind of be sorted through before um, dad's invited onto the bus. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the, like, not my news to share. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was thinking too on this, like the mom also, I think has the right to tell her child, like, it is hard for me to keep this from dad. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to, because you've Mm -hmm. asked me to, and it's not my news, but it does make it a more complicated situation. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay for the, right. For the kid to understand that. Right. Oh yeah. Dad and I usually don't keep secrets from each other or whatever Mm -hmm. your family rules are. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I support that. I think the, the more authentic communication and the real communication that mom can provide about the uncomfortableness and not telling dad is actually important for uh, the child. Yeah. To, to hear and and, and I, I mean this is different than like having a conversation with an eight-year-old like yes. we're talking 17 18 year old no, about to go to college right yeah one of the things with coming out that i don't think a lot of people understand is that it's it's a continuous process it is a lifelong process um it's never over and so it's really important to let people control that and let people know they have the power. And I love what you said, like it's their information to share. We need to allow them to share that information. Yeah. And, you know, and that's why I think it's so like, it's just so important to understand, you know, we're not talking about a harm issue. We're not talking about, you know, anything drastic. It's just, Hey, I'm not ready to share this information yet. You know, ironically, um, I, I, I told my parents together, but it was like, I always tell people this, like, you don't come out on a specific day. You know, <laughs> we don't do it at Christmas. We don't do it, you know, New Year's or, you know, whatever big family gathering kind of thing. We do it on a Tuesday. You know, and that's how I phrase that. Like, we do it on a Tuesday. And, and people are like, what does that mean? And it's like, you do it on an ordinary day because you don't want to, when people do the big family thing, like, there's all these other things that go with yeah, oh, having yeah. the whole family together. <laughs> That it's just, that's not the time. That's not the time. And so I, I usually talk to people about like, you know, we pick an average random day really to to make sure that that conversation's only focused on that information. Yeah, not, not lost in other people's lost emotions in other and thing. other exactly. stuff. Yeah, that's exactly. great advice. So we are going to pivot just a little bit. We have a mental health specific question now, okay. which is our listener writes, I would love to hear about dealing with a teen who seems often so dispirited, not enthusiastic about anything, or is just being sullen and like not talking to parents. How do we keep a real relationship and that line of communication open? Oh, okay. It, 
you know, this is probably first to really, we haven't said this, but we probably just say everything we're talking about is not medical advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely, please. Uh, I encourage you to reach out to a mental health professional in your area. Um, if something that we're talking about today kind of resonates with you and you're like, hey, I would like to learn more about that. It'd be interesting to know if this was a change for the, for the team. Um, you know, I... We all go through the teen angst, if you will, in some form or fashion. So is this a, is this a behavioral change or is this something maybe a little bit more? Um, I think the big thing with that is it's kind of finding, this is hard, finding the balance between I want my communication line open and I'm pushing too hard. Okay. Sometimes people just, you know, they're, they're not ready to talk or, the, or they're not wanting to talk and that's okay. And it's hard because you know, we, we want them to talk because we feel something and we want to feel better. So we push them to talk so we can feel better. Yeah. And that's not really what's going on. You know, it's, if, if the teen is, you know, kind of sullen and kind of, you know, non-responsive and just doing that whole thing as a parent, I would say, you know, obviously reach out to the teen say, I'm here. If you want to talk about something, you know, ask the questions, how did school go today? Um, it's really important to engage them in the normative conversation, even if they don't want to participate, um, because that's going to keep the line open and not judge them when they don't want to share a whole bunch. You know, if they're like, yes, yeah, school is fine today. Okay, cool. You know, and then maybe if you get that a couple of times, say, hey, I'm just curious, what is, what's a fine school day? I don't really know what that means. Like how, what does that look like? Yeah. But you don't, you don't judge them for like, you should tell me more. You should really. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, don't don't go after them. No, okay? this is such a good point that yeah. like the line can be open and mm-hmm. nothing coming through it, and mm-hmm. and that can be very different than the line is closed. Exactly. Um, like you, it's almost like the teen just needs to know that you are still there and you're mm-hmm. still involved, even if they don't want to mm-hmm. give you anything. Right. Well, and I think one of the biggest things to say is like you know. Hey, it's cool that you don't want to share anything with me. If you ever do, I'm here for you. I just want you to know I love you. Yeah. You know, and and and, and that's it, right? And they're going to be like, you know, if they were like me when I was a teacher, like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, leave me <laughs> alone. Okay, weird. But, but <laughs> right? But it, it's, it's important because they're really still going to hear that message. They're still going to know that that's there. You know, now granted, if there's some other things going on where you're getting concerned about safety, let's get some professionals involved. That's a completely different issue. Right, right. But yeah, if we're just talking sullen, non-responsive, like kind of doing the, I, I, I'm withdrawing, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's yeah. not anything to be super concerned about. To me, it's just continuing to keep the line open. They don't have to answer. And I think that's the biggest challenge for parents is, you know, a parent feels uncomfortable, like, oh, they don't want to talk to me. It, we got to sit with that, you know, as long as you let the, the child know I'm there and I'm here if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it for our show. Thanks again to Rebecca Onion and Dr. Joseph Curran. On Thursday, we'll bring you a second set of teen questions y'all submitted, including how to navigate some uncomfortable but extremely necessary conversations about sex. So I hope you'll join us. Subscribe to the show so you don't miss it. If you rely on the show for parenting advice, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's the best way to support this show. Members will never hear another ad on this or any other Slate podcast. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Again, that's slate.com slash mom and dad plus. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Jasmine Ellis and Rosemary Belson. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.